everyone, and welcome back to the Rumcast. We are the podcast that talks all things rum-related with the people who love and shape it. My name is John Gulla, and co-piloting this podcast with me is none other than one Mr. Will Hookinga. Will, I-, I know you're excited to share the details and the setup for our interview today with Mark Renier and Jane Nurse from Renegade Rum, which we, we actually had to break it up into two parts because it was so full of information. Yeah. Um, but first, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of mention that since we do record these ahead of time, mm-hmm. Will, I'm imagining that right now, as this episode is being released, we are both living it up at the Miami Rum Congress, uh, which is this weekend, February, uh, I think it's the 10th through the 12th, and enjoying some rum and talking to some rum folks there and uh, hopefully having a really good time. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing myself with that warm uh, Atlantic breeze, you know, <laughs> blowing through my hair in the midst of February. It is the Atlantic, right? I, like, Miami is like, it's on the Atlantic side. It's not on it the is. Gulf side, right? Okay. No, no, For, it counts as the Atlantic side. Yeah, okay. totally. Forgive, forgive my Florida geography knowledge there. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's it's the middle of February, so it's a perfect time for me to travel from Nashville down to Miami and hopefully avoid some cold weather up here. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, uh, yeah, get to spend some time together in person, get to see some of the rum fam out there. And I know we've, we've talked to a few listeners already who are going to be out there. If anyone listening is planning to be there, definitely say hello. It'd be great to have a chat, have a little drink together, enjoy some rum. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I agree. If you see us there, don't be shy. You know, stop us. Uh, if you don't know what we look like, uh, head to the website. If, if, if you, <laughs> you see our pictures there, uh, I'll probably be wearing the same UM hat. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be around. So please uh, come up and say hi. Uh, definitely. So, Will, I know there was also another... Uh, we got an email from a listener yes. uh, who was responding to one of the things we talked about last episode about uh, bottle placement on shelves. So right. you you brought up an odd bottle placement story. I always love these odd bottle placement stories where you're in a store perusing the rum section and you see something somewhere that just doesn't belong. And you shared your experience of that. What it was like a you know ultra super mega premium display uh-huh, case and uh-huh. what, what was in it again? What was with the lineup bo- with Boomboo in the middle of it? So and it was what, like what was it in between? It was like Mount Gay uh, Port Cask or something along those mm-hmm, lines. Mm-hmm. And then I think it had some ECS series from Foursquare and some other really really high end rums from Bacardi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but like the Boomboo there stuck out to me between those two especially. Right. And I was like, oh my goodness, uh, I cannot believe inside a glass case, mind you. Right. So a real one of these things is not like the other situation, even just talking about by price, you know. So um, but anyway, we got an email from John up in Maine and he shared one that honestly, this one might be even funny. Maybe it's because he actually sent a picture. So I really got the full effect. But it's a it's an image. And, you know, you always get to the, the part of the rum section where it transitions from actual rum to the spice rums and mm-hmm. Malibu and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So it's that section. You've got you've got a, a row of Captain Morgan. You've got uh, the bottom shelf is kind of Malibu, Malibu down there mm-hmm. and some like flavored Bacardi's and stuff. Then at the top, you've got your, you know, your premium spice drums. You've got your Sailor Jerry, your Kraken, <laughs> your Kraken Black Roast. And they're nestled in between the leader handle of Sailor Jerry and the smaller Kraken 
is one bottle of Foursquare Isonomy, which um, it's just it's 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 just a great image. Maybe we'll have to ask John if we can post yeah. this on Instagram or something. It'd be a great one. But I was thinking to myself, like, how how does this happen? I'm curious. Do you, did you have any theories, John? I, I had one that I floated in uh, our email reply to to John that he's actually he's J O N, you're J O H N. So, mm-hmm. did you have any theories? Um. No. <laughs> so I'll, I'll share my theory. Okay. My, my theory is that this bottle is something that someone at the store was trying to save for someone else. But like, you know, someone who, yeah, someone who's yeah. into rum and was right, like, right. Hey, hey, like, they hey, hit you it. know, I saw, yeah. I saw you guys have a sonomy. I'll, I'll be there next week. Can you hold mm-hmm. it for me? Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's a situation where whoever at the store, like they couldn't actually just take it off the shelf and put it in the back. Maybe they have some kind of policy against that. But right. what they could do <laughs> is hide it in plain sight, John. So if you want to hide something in plain sight, a an expensive high-end rum that yeah. rum enthusiasts are after, where would you hide it? But in between the Sailor Jerry's and the Kraken. It's or kind in of the vodka a, section. I mean, that, that's true. But see, you can't be too obvious with it because then someone, some other employee is going to come through and be like, and be like what know, is what this the, doing here? What the hell here? is this rum yeah. doing in the vodka yeah. section? So yeah, That's true. It's it's uh it's kind of a, a diabolically brilliant plan, mm, I, I mm. think, in that case. So yeah. I, I can't think of any other explanation, but like I said, I love seeing these photos of odd placement. And I, we've had some conversations in the past too of like what is the ideal way to organize a rum section? Because I feel like the way most are is pretty dissatisfying, and that's probably a whole other conversation for another oh, yeah. episode. We could but... talk about that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you have any uh, funny bottle placement photos to share, definitely send us an email, host at rumcast.com. Maybe we can get a whole like collage of them to share uh, via Instagram or something <laughs> like that. That would be fun. But John, um, with all that out of the way, this in, uh, this episode will be part one of two. Uh, this actually ended up being our, we set our own personal record for longest interview time. It yeah. was a solid three hour interview. Now, like once we, you know, edit and stuff, it'll probably not come to three hours total runtime combined, mm-hmm. but we keep it lean for you. <laughs> we we do yeah we, I I feel like we're pretty generous and we don't it's not like we edit out a ton of stuff um, no not because at all. we're yeah. we're I think we err on the side of including too much Agreed. in our interviews mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. but you know three hours is a lot so we did want to split this up into a part one and part two and it also had a very just kind of like good natural conclusion for part one leading into part two but. As you said, we talked to Mark Rainier and Jane Nurse. Mark is the founder and CEO of Renegade Rum Distillery. Jane is their environmental compliance and public relations officer. But she's kind of, she described herself as a Swiss army knife. She kind of Mm -hmm. does a little bit of everything. And I was really happy to get both of them because I felt they both brought really interesting, different perspectives to the interview. And I always love when we're able to do that. But if you're unfamiliar with Renegade Rum Distillery, this is, at this point, it's not brand, brand new, but in terms of like, you know, rum distilleries out there, it's it's one of the newest, maybe the newest rum yeah. distillery of its size mm-hmm. in the Caribbean. And it was built completely from the ground up in Grenada. They're making fresh cane juice rum. They're growing all of the sugar cane themselves. And the, the first time that 
I like really started to kind of look at this distillery and be like, whoa, like something's going on here was when I really got a sense of the scale of what they're doing. So it's, it's not, you know, just a small craft distillery or something like that. It's, it's a sizable operation. Like they, Mm -hmm. they planted hundreds of acres of sugar cane, I think 14 different farms they're up to now or somewhere close. Maybe it's, will be at 14 soon. Mm -hmm. Um, They've got, 10,000 liter pot still, a big twin column still, so they can do a variety of all these distillates. And then the the other factor is Mark Rainier's involvement, which if you're unfamiliar with him, that means you're probably, you know, kind of like me, just a rum enthusiast. But if you're someone who uh, is into whiskey as well, you may already be familiar with Mark. He's very big in the whiskey world. He was part of the team that uh, started, restarted, I guess, Bricolati Distillery in Scotland, kind of an old, defunct Scotch distillery that they reopened. I think that was around 2000 or so, right, mm-hmm. John? Sometime? Yeah, I think like, that's right. 2000, 2001, and around The turn there. of the mm-hmm. century. It feels so weird <laughs> to say that about, <laughs> about 2000. The Y2K but, bug. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> So he did that. Uh, more recently, he started uh, a brand new place in Ireland called Waterford, which is a single malt Irish whiskey distillery. And the idea behind these distilleries, which I'm bringing up because it's relevant to it's uh, Renegade is kind of a continuation of the philosophy behind mm-hmm. those distilleries. But if we're painting in broad strokes, like kind of what they did with those distilleries was instead of sourcing barley from all these other places around the world, like my understanding is that's what most distillery whiskey distilleries do. They kind of source barley wherever they can get it. It's not like they're growing it in their backyard or anything. Mm -hmm. He wanted to grow uh, or or partner with local growers and source all locally grown barley and then track which farm it came from. So you'd have these different releases where, um, you know, it may have been distilled the same way, uh, fermented the same way, but, but the barley came from a different place and you would see that on your bottle. And the whole idea was based around the the concept of terroir and spirits and trying to show that just like how that's thought of in wine, it can apply to distilled spirits as well. You the 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 place where your base material is grown dramatically affects the output at the end uh, when mm-hmm. you get in the bottle and being able to taste the differences and see how the land impacts flavor. And so that is kind of the similar blueprint they're following with Renegade. And like I said, they have 14 different farms and I I believe their first releases started coming out. It may have been like late 2021 or possibly 2022. I can't remember. I think it was 2021 where their first unaged rums were released. And if if you've seen the photos or if you've seen them in person, they're these, you know, really bright, vibrant Mm -hmm. colored bottles they kind of stick with you once you see what they look like. They're they're pretty unique. And on the back, they have this thing called a cane code where you can punch it in on their website. And it's like, you know, here's the exact farm and field on the farm where the cane that went into this rum was grown. And so the idea is over time, you'll be able to taste all these various different terroirs. Uh, terroir, terroir. I, I, I never know how to pronounce these. There's There's two things that show me all the time how little French I know. Mm-hmm. One is doing this podcast, and the other one is doing crossword puzzles, where <laughs> they will occasionally have clues that really, you know, you need to know something in French, and I'm just shit out of luck completely on all those. So anyway, however you pronounce it, that's kind of the the big focus behind this project. So A, the size, the scale, B, 
fresh sugarcane, investing big in sugarcane, like all these things are super interesting stuff that we talk about all the time on the show. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, like you're saying, it's really important that they're focusing on the terroir and that is the, the vision behind what they're doing here. Like mm-hmm. you said, the history that leads up to that. Um, but just how they're highlighting all of that and giving that information over. And we talk a lot about that in the, the transparency mm-hmm. uh, down to very uh, specific details of what's going into that bottle is a, a really cool thing. I, it sounds like they're here for to stay. They're, they're, they've got a lot going on and a lot that they talk about what their plan is in the long-term strategy, right. uh, which was really cool to hear also. So Yeah, that's yeah. the other part of it that is so interesting to me is like projects of this, new projects of this, this scale built from scratch with someone going, investing so much into rum don't come around that often. So it's always mm-hmm. interesting to, to get the story. But um, so part one, it's it's really kind of the making of the project and the distillery. So there were tons of these wild ups and downs along the way. I mean, the pandemic happened like right around when they were supposed to start distilling, with which mm-hmm. obviously really complicated things. So so we it, it was really interesting to get both Jane and Mark's perspectives on that the process and also of someone you know from outside the country coming in and doing this huge project there, which can arise suspicions. And Jane's from Grenada, so she was able to kind of bring a voice to that. And then Mm -hmm. part two is going to go deeper into the rum production itself, what kind of drove their stylistic decisions, what the longer-term roadmap looks like. There's some really interesting stuff they're doing with aging, and their aged releases, their first aged releases have just started coming out, but what they're releasing now and what they aim to be releasing, Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a big difference. And so we get into all that. But I'm just, I'm interested to see where things go because... One one thing that comes through, I think, in this interview a lot is Mark is is very very confident about their approach, and like he even used the word uh, arrogant, I think, to describe <laughs> uh, himself, or at least you know maybe how other people see it. But I mean, his whole philosophy, like his philosophy, to me seems to be he is coming in as an outsider, and he wants to retain that perspective. And right. you kind of get that a little bit in the name itself. Uh, Renegade, right. you know, implies, right. <laughs> like, you know, maybe mm-hmm. being wa- wanting to be seen that way. But like, he, he's he's made it clear, like he's not interested in what other rum producers are doing. They want to just like come in total blank slate approach, not influenced by others. And there's to me, there's like kind of two sides to that coin. There's like, if you take that approach, it's possible you ha- you it, you arrive at your own super unique way of doing things like something people truly haven't seen before because you mm-hmm. you know ignored mm-hmm. everything else that's out there. Right. Um, the other side of the coin is you can end up making mistakes that like right. other people have already done. Yeah. Um, and so I think like the proof will ultimately be in the pudding and, and how everything you know tastes at the end of the day. And so I'm just really excited to see how all that plays out. And uh, it was it was good to to get the story and learn more. So I'm excited yeah. for people to hear it. Well, why don't we just uh, take a quick break and coming up next, it'll be our interview part one with Mark Rainier and Jane Nurse. Hey, rum fans. Looking for an easy way to stay informed about what's going on in the rum industry? If so, head over to therumlab.com, where you can keep up with everything going on in the rum scene. From their detailed infographics that do a deep dive into individual rum expressions, to their weekly rum newsletter, to live streams with many of the most recognizable names in rum, there's always something new to learn. 
And you can find out more info on their annual rum events happening across the United States, including the Miami Rum Congress, New York Rum Fest, Chicago Rum Fest, LA Rum Fest, and the San Francisco Rum Fest. Visit therumlab.com and sign up today to receive their newsletter so you don't miss any of what's happening or what's coming up soon. That's therumlab.com. Now back to the show. All right, we are here with two guests on this episode of the Rumcast. Um, first of all, we have the founder and CEO of Renegade Rum Distillery in Grenada. He's also the founder of Waterford Whiskey Distillery in Ireland, former head of Brooklady Distillery in Scotland, 20 years or so in wine before that, I believe, as well. Uh, I want to make sure I get all the titles right, uh, the, the resume right, but um, I have a new title for you, Mark, after you know reading about you and everything. I, I want to introduce you as the superstar of terroir. That's what I feel like is is befitting. Be, okay, Jane, Jane's giving Even two with thumbs up. Call me something else, but that, you know, that, that would do. Yeah. Uh, and we also have the official Swiss Army knife of Renegade Rum Distillery, Jane Nurse. She is also the Environmental Compliance and Public Relations Officer. I can't wait to get into all the ins and outs of what you do for Renegade, Jane, because it sounds like you're covering a lot of ground. But thank you both for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Thank you for, having, for us. having us, guys. So w- one thing I wanted to, to to get out of the way at the beginning, you know, Mark, I've been kind of consuming a ton of interviews you've done over the years this week, and I, I noticed that many of them where you've discussed Renegade are either in whiskey-related podcasts, whiskey-related magazines, YouTube channels, which makes sense given your background. But I wanted to assure both of you today that you are among people who speak the language of rum. So you don't you don't <laughs> have to translate. You won't have to try to convince us that yes, rum actually can be really good. So <laughs> Lovely, that sounds exciting. Yeah, I was thinking back, I remember the first time I really got a sense of the scale of Renegade what y'all were doing. Worspa did a series of live streams where Matt Petrick interviewed different producers from throughout the Caribbean. And he brought on your head distiller, Devin Date, along with Graham Williams and Bertrand John. And they went deep through all the aspects of farming, production, and all that stuff. And that's when I was like, okay, like, wow, this, this isn't just a whiskey producer who's kind of dipping a toe into rum. Like, you've, you know, you've got both feet in, you've, your head's <laughs> under the water, you've, like, dived all the way in. So uh, I wanted to start with just what pushed you to enter the category as a distiller? Because I know you had experience doing some independent bottlings of rum for a while. Um, I can't remember if that's when you were still with Brooklady or if that was afterward. Mm-hmm. But it was. Um, yeah. there, there's a big difference between you know, just kind of sourcing and bottling some rum and like going all in, building this distillery, building this farming operation and everything. So what kind of first pushed you to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to like go this deep into rum. Well, I didn't intend to, um, (laughs) independent bottling. Yeah. I, I got into that first of, of whiskey. It was a circumstance back in the early eighties, as a lot of these things are, Mm-hmm. Um, I met a guy called Gordon Wright, who was peddling independent uh, whiskeys at the time. Cadenhead, he was selling to me. Uh, I, okay. I had a wine shop. And it was at that time that I thought, well, you know, this is an interesting idea. Uh, um, single malt whiskey was just taking off. And there were lots of venerable barrels 
uh, appearing on the market, broking market, I hasten to add. And it was Gordon that sort of suggested that, you know, you could get onto this distribution list if you played your cards right. Hmm. And you could get offered these, you know, gems. You know, mm-hmm. Really, there were the distilleries that no longer existed, ages that were venerable. You know, they were distilled in a different era. You know, there was less, you know, it, it was it was more regional. It was all calmed down. They were, they, they were better whiskies. And that was really the catalyst for the whole single malt whiskey boom. Mm. Uh, at the time, 0.01% of whiskey was single malt. And so mm. suddenly, uh, uh, as a result of economic circumstances, the big companies offloading, recalibrating, rebalancing their bulk stocks, they offloaded the ones that they'd shut down, you know, distilleries, you know, you know a decade, 15 years earlier. So, so uh, um, this little gem of, 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 of old whiskey stocks, cheap as chips, and, um, you know, it didn't take much to bottle them up. And a sort of underground movement started, which got validation when Diageo saw what was going on and jumped in with their own uh, classic malts, which sort of validated the whole thing. And, well, we are where we are now. Uh, uh, so, so really, the, the, the pioneer, the prelude to all that was, was independent. You know, this sort of armchair bottling as it's armchair you know, often, <laughs> often dismissively you know because basically anybody can do it anywhere yeah, right and, but the trouble was it seemed to me that there was no quality assessment um it was barrel by barrel good and bad and ugly mm-hmm. um and you know coming from the wine trade you know, you don't do single barrels. No one's ever seen a single barrel of Chateau feet or Chateau Tour. They don't do it yeah, because true. the fundamental principle is you put them together and it's better than the individual components. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, why not try the same thing, you know, with, with single malts? And that was, that was the beginning of my uh, uh, independent bottling days, um, a company named after my maternal grandparents, Murray and McDavid. Okay, and that was great. You know, that was fun. It was, it was, it, 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 you, know, you couldn't get it wrong. It, it was, it was an amazing period. But very quickly, it became clear that it was going to be unsustainable because those early distillations from the sixties drying 50s, out were going to disappear. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. what? Then you're left with the post seventy three industrial distillation when things were speeded up. Things were, you know, fermentations were shortened to one day. Barrels, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, were recycled uh, horrendously. Uh, the um, dark ages, as we call them sometimes. Well, <laughs> you know, but, but, but of course, you know, in, in the defense of the big guys, the defense, they never knew that single malt whiskey was going to come. As far as they were concerned, single malt whiskey was merely a whiskey flavoring additive to, you know, humdrum, banal, column still spirit. Mm-hmm. Kind of like right. highest so, rum. Mm. Ah, so, 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 so they didn't they didn't anticipate single malt whiskey taking off. In fact, they did everything to stop it, you know, to keep it under the table. So, production wise, the seventies was not, a, you know, just like music was not a good time. <laughs> uh, um, not a, not a fan of seventies music. Uh, You're making so, enemies here, Mark. I don't know. So, so enemies. It's a disco. Well, okay, you you disco if you want. To. Uh, uh, um, but 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 the the, the, the principle was that, that you know the sixties, um, you know that age of innocence when things were more regional. There were everything was you know a little bit slower. 
It made better whiskey. Well, when, and then, did, when did the rum bottling come into the picture for you then? That wasn't well, the until I, yeah, so much the reason later, I explained right? It, uh-huh. Yeah, but the reason, the reason I explain that is because that's once once it all you know all the decent stuff dried up and you were left with the hodgepodge, you know, as an independent bottler, you get to see everybody's dirty linen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know the whole industry issue mm-hmm. and you know, the recycling of barrels, the excessive mm-hmm. recycling of barrels, the abrogation of the maturation policy, the homogenization, you know. Um, and coming from Burgundy uh, as a Burgundian you know, fan in the 80s and 90s, which was a, a huge renaissance, precisely, um, you know, the post war sort of socialist winemaking you know, ended up with the European wine lakes, um, the excessive agrochemical. Application that killed the soils and you know sacrificed terroir uh, um, at the altar of excessive fertilization. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the eighties and nineties that they basically said, "Look, this this can't go on," and rediscovered the terroirs, re well applied for the first time modern winemaking. Learned in Australia, learned in California, Roseworthy Davis University, yeah, and they came back. With modern winemaking, they threw out the, the folklore, historic, you know, Jean-Pierre, you know, and started making proper wine. Well, you just have to look now to see, you know, just how successful that was, reducing the yields, concentrating on quality and hygiene. And, and I basically wanted to apply those principles and, you know, not least the uh, integration of wood which is a, you know, a very big subject. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, I experienced this over 20 years. And I saw what happened. And so when I progressed to buying ultimately Brooklady Distillery, because I wanted to be in charge, I wanted to distill. Right. You know, the old stuff shows what could be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really happy with what's going on, you know. So I want, give me a go. Surely, I mean, the arrogance of it was, surely I can do a better <laughs> job. And that's Why not, what we right? Started. It can't be that yeah, hard. <laughs> so, you know, that's why I started applying those ideas uh, to, to, to the distillation at, 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 uh, at Bravladi. And then, you know, more recently at, at, at Waterford. So having, having sort of realized that, you know, that, that the good stuff had all gone uh, by 2000, 2000, you know, the early noughties, somebody waved, I can't remember how, I, I got to say, you know, well, why, in barrels of rub. Mm. There were there were some European aged rums from from again from defunct distilleries lying around of uh, old maturation mm-hmm. and so so basically we, we, we transferred the Murray McDavid idea to to rum and then and then we thought okay let's give it its own uh, branding so we we started the Renegade Rum Company and that's that was our independent bottling and. Were you surprised at the time to find rums like that? Like, did you have an awareness that those were there? Or was it just kind of like, wow, I had no idea that I had rums no of idea this quality that, uh, existed? Well, well, I mean, that, that, that's, that's an interesting point. Because, I mean, if it took me, what, the best part of 15 years uh, to, 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 to play with single malt whiskeys, mm-hmm. independent bottom work, the, the rum episode was even shorter. Mm. Because very quickly those stocks disappeared. Everybody ended up bottling the same stuff. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. There was no variety. There was no volume. There was, you know, it was two barrels here, three barrels there, and it, frankly, it just got one very boring. Uh, two, the 
it was evident that the maturation was not very good. Um, and thirdly, there was this feeling that I had, which was, you know, whilst you had this very expansive, broad flavor profile, much broader than you do with, with, with single malt, there was no depth. Something was missing. You know, it was like hollow that you, know, you got breadth, but no, you know, and you're, you're searching for, you know, you, you, you sort of try to sip through your teeth, you know, where, where's the depth here? Uh, um, so, you know, even by putting these barrels together to try to try and make something more, more, more compelling, um, you know, frankly, the quality of wood was so poor that, you know, we had to sort of do all sorts of, you know, decantings into different woods to try, you know, to try and get some interest going. And in the end, we gave up. We just thought, this is, this is crazy. Um, Basically, and, you felt like you couldn't get what you wanted anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I was very disappointed by, by what I was seeing. So, so, so I went on a, a, a peregrination. I went on a tour. <laughs> Good you know, word. Well, well, basically, not like your mate who did his 18 months. It was, it was a sort of you know, summer holiday thing. And you go okay. ferreting around, nosing around, uh, diving, fishing, whatever it was. But um, I went to Fiji and you know, Mauritius and, and, and uh, uh, yeah. Jamaica and Cuba and you know, down the islands and, and, and sort of looking around to see what was there, to, I suppose you could argue, you know, looking to see if there was a, a Brookladdy to buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Sounds like a rum crusade. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <a quest. laughs> and, 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 you know, a number of things occurred to me, uh, well, probably at the risk of offending everybody, um, was, was I was appalled by what I discovered, you know, uh, you know coming from uh, um, the whiskey industry, you know, to see the, um, a lot of very, very tired uh, distilleries, um, ancient, poorly maintained, poorly uh, uh, um, managed uh, uh, machinery, and they a heightened. I, I, I was, to be honest, I was shocked. Uh, um, I mean, obviously, there's exceptions, you know, and then before everybody sort of throws brick bats them. Uh, <laughs> I was going to um, say, I was going to say, wait, are you saying everywhere is bad? <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, that was my that you know, and and so you know, well, first of all, I, I didn't find. And you know, I talked to a lot of people, and 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 I was I was rather surprised at the the difference between the rum industry and the and and the uh, professionalism of the of, of the whiskey industry. Um, of course, this all goes back. I mean, it's a much bigger subject. We could go on for bloody hours about this, but you know, right. it's it, the rum being that commodity product hmm. um, that was shipped back to Europe, and the branding and bottling and whatever yeah. happened, it was it was on a broker's market back in mm-hmm. Europe. It was a commodity. Uh, uh, um, there were very few uh, distiller brand owners right. uh, around. That's really a more recent phenomenon, just in the yeah, last yeah, uh, couple exactly. of decades. So yeah. Well, 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 this is it. So, so, so you know, I, I suppose that was the end of you know, that, that cusp of that of, of that era, and I, I just felt you know pretty disenchanted by what I what, what I what I saw, um, and so it, it sort of dawned on me after about you know, 10 years of doing this, I suppose a bit less than six or seven years that, you know, if I, if, if I wanted to do something, I was going to have to build it myself. Um, when you took over Brooklady, I know you had mentioned also that there was some equipment that there was previously there. And I think Waterford, it was a brewery, but it also had something. What, are you saying there was a real difference there in the rum distilleries versus those? Also? Well, yeah, yeah, good point. 
Good point. Well, Brook Laddie, uh, an interesting point. Brook Laddie was built in 1881, mm-hmm. a Victorian distillery. It was purpose built. It wasn't, you know, uh, um, a farm distillery adapted or, or whatever. It was purpose built as mm-hmm. a single malt whiskey. It had a number of extraordinary concepts that were innovative, two of which were adopted by the rest of the industry. It was, oh, all, uh, uh, it, it was, it was all anti-collapse valves, for example, on, on, on stills. But it was all gravity-fed, and it was built around a courtyard, and mm-hmm. it was built to use coal, and it was built to use imported barley because the island, which at one point had 20 distilleries but really, really small capacity, just didn't have enough local barley to grow. And so it required an economic change. It required the invention of steam puffer uh, vessels, mm-hmm. flat-bottomed vessels, commodity-carrying, that could get to the island, beach on the uh, um, sands in front of the city, be offloaded and mm-hmm. unloaded. So the economics changed. Brookladdy was built because of that economic development. Coal much more effective than peat, and, of course, the scale um, the distillery because you had the ability to to bring in bring in the barley. So it, it was state of the art, eighteen eighty one, and mm-hmm. the and testament kind of- to it was that by uh, about two thousand were imported. Well, you know it's solid cast iron engineering. It was relatively simple to get it back going again because you know it was it was pretty 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 basic machinery. It sounds like it was kind of laid out and structured for the style of production that you wanted to bring there. And I guess what I'm hearing is that you had trouble finding a distillery for purchase that would be kind of set up to do this sort of farm to well, uh, distillation. Yeah, as you know, you know a lot of because you know we're, good, we're throwing a lot of things. So so so, so here <laughs> we're going well, all over the place. Know, yeah. yeah, yeah, fine. But I don't mind. You know, we can do this. House don't have. Uh, um, I just hope you, you don't get bored. But but you know you, you you need to go back to where you know where rum starts. Mm. And you know uh, I, I, I firmly believe that, that sort of rum's happy-go-lucky, carefree you know nature, a, a reputation goes back to how it was made. That it was never a primary uh, product. It was a byproduct, and we should never forget this because it explains a lot. Uh, uh, um, it was a byproduct. So it was something for nothing. Um, and sugar was the gold, refining was the process, and then you know, with the, the stuff left over, you made something you know, that you could drink in the bush and, 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 and enjoy. It was never a primary thing. So, so sugar refineries you know, would have the distillery ultimately bolted on alongside. So, so actually building a distillery expressly to distill rum, you know, was was something much 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 later. Before we get too far into things, um, I know we're we're going to get into how you know you eventually ended up finding Grenada, that being kind of the the place to do this. Um, Jane, I don't want to just leave you all all alone over there. I have to all know good, like all good. <laughs> when when did you come into the picture? When did you sort of see this English whiskey guy coming and and having this big dream? <laughs> and like what what kind of caused you to be like yes, like this is great. I, I believe in this, and I'm gonna you know be part of it. <laughs> I think the exact moment is 2017. Um, I am Grenadian, but I'm also German. So I came back to Grenada in 2017 is when I moved okay. permanently to the island. And so I, I think it's been a bit of a relationship. I can't say, okay, this is the moment when it happened. It was a 
enough fear to do slowly. I can, Jake. I can. <laughs> oh, can you? <laughs> um, John Adams on the plane. It's true. Well, I met I was uh, I met John Adams, a financial director at Waterford, at the, at the on the plane, and he was telling me about the project. And to be to be fair, I had I think a common reaction of being very skeptical. I was like, what are these people doing in Grenada? Also, as a small island, you're very protective of your islands. Mm-hmm. You're always mm-hmm. right. wary of whoever comes and wants to do something because we right. have a string of failed projects. So that was 2017. And then I think they, John reached out sometime in 2018. He said, Mark's going to come to the island. Would you like to meet him? And I thought, well, you know, it doesn't harm. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and then I think we met a few times. And I was just saying, when Mark took me up to site, um, where the distillery is now located we got there and it was just a big hole in the ground but he showed me the wetlands that is adjacent and uh, it's just a magnificent space and my background is not um, from the spirits I consider myself a recent rum convert my my background's been more in environmental realm and so obviously I have a strong connection to let's say coastal environments the shores mm. and I love that and I just saw the space and I thought wow this is this is amazing and I think Going back to what Mark was saying earlier, the fact that essentially sugarcane is our star, right? Mm. That everything is built around extolling terroir or the natural environment of Grenada. I think that was just, that was a concept I've never heard of before. And I think what we found with Renegade and also with Kenko, the agricultural side, was that it's a geek's paradise. And I'm a geek. <laughs> geek's so paradise. So there, there is something new to learn every single day. And I think... Um, these guys seemed a little bit crazy, but they also had something that was absolutely unique and remarkable. And that was a passion and a curiosity and a perseverance, an appetite for risk and faith to pull something off in the Caribbean that mm. is, I mean, that's virtually unheard of. And when you do a project in the Caribbean or in Grenada, it's not for the faint hearted. I mean, this yeah. was a difficult, difficult thing to do, right? And uh, I think over the years now, so 2018, I think we had this pivotal meeting and 2019 I started kind of dabbling a little bit and by 2020 when the pandemic hit mm-hmm. I was full in and so I've seen a team go from the initial pains of just getting construction to you now building the operation and now actually having product in the market and uh, I have so much just admiration and respect I think for the hard craft and ingenuity that everybody had to pour it from Mark and the investors being courageous enough to take a risk like that mm-hmm. from the team locally here who's made everything happen, implementing it. And I think from a Grenadian perspective, this is a, this is a lighthouse project, not just, I mean, within the island, obviously also within the industry, but it sets something, it sets a tone that we have not had before. And it's mm-hmm. both in terms of, um, let's say, the agricultural aspect of it, because we have a bit of a love-hate relationship with agriculture. It's in our DNA through our plantation era and beyond that. But we have not seen anything in terms of the modernization of scale that we're working on mm. to now or in the areas where we are located. It's completely, it's breaking with the mold of any kind of development that we've seen prior. And I think that's something that excited me when I first started. It was a bit crazy and I was very wary of it, I have to admit. But I think we've tapped into a potential and we're building something that is really quite unique. 
you know, we're bringing something very different to the industry, but it has so many deeper layers to it, which makes this project complex and emotionally, you know, appealing. And you just mm-hmm. get sucked into it. Once you start, you can't really stop. <laughs> it seems like there's any numbers of any number of interesting kind of challenges and problems for you to figure out and solve, um, which I, I can see the appeal in that. I'm interested in in that process. And and Mark, I. I, I can't remember which interview, but you know, you made a reference to there were times where you, you know, thought the project was going to go bust, um, things like that. And then Jane, I'm sure maybe you saw some of that from or a, felt a different some perspective, of it. or yeah. felt some <laughs> of it. Um, what were kind of like some of the biggest challenges to overcome, or moments where you were like, "Man, I, I don't know if this is going to work." Uh, take take us through that from from both of your perspectives a little bit. Do you want to go first, Jane, or shall I? Uh, um, you go ahead and I supplement. <laughs> I think I think there were four occasions where I was ready to get on a plane and leave, um, disheartened, disenfranchised, frustrated, fed up. And if it hadn't been for our MD here on Grenada, Graham Williams, you know, I would have left. I, I, I mean, we started this project. Remember, you know, the, the very beginnings of it. I first came to Grenada in. Um, I think it was December uh, 2014. Um, and I came uh, at the behest of my FD, John Adams, who knew I was getting frustrated finding a home, having decided I wanted to build a distillery. Mm-hmm. Where? Um, you know, places were too dangerous. They carried guns. They were too far away. They were too difficult to get to. They were too developed. You know, I wanted a quiet corner of the Caribbean and, uh, John said, look, you know, he had a university mate who had a holiday house in Grenada. And he said, why don't you come with me? So I went with him. And uh, I can remember, you know, as plane taxied into uh, um, Morris Bishop Airport. And I was looking out the window. Of the, and I just thought, this is it. This, I, 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 the green mountainous uh, uh, Sun was shining in the right yeah. Right well, light it, for you. It, it, it was the, the angels the, singing. Well, it, it, you know the houses. You know, there, there wasn't too many of them, and it was there weren't big high rise hotels. And you know, and it, it just I just thought it just felt it just felt like this is it. And so uh, we hired a car and we went round the island. And of course, the first thing we realised was there was no bloody sugar cane. Uh, <laughs> um, one one there was problem. Nothing there. Yeah. You, know, you know, so so this project, you know, like any you know, you know, anyone who's built a house. You spend a lot, a lot of time uh, uh, on the foundations and, and, you know, the money and everything gets poured into that big hole in the ground. And it takes ages before it mm. eventually gets to ground level. And then it's, you know, woof, it goes up pretty quick. And that's sort of where we are at the moment, that, uh, on, uh, at that period. But, you know, the first thing was, you know, I, I don't know what it is about Atlantic islands, but I seem to sort of, uh, you know, get attracted to them because I live on Isla, on the west coast of Scotland, right. where you know we did uh, uh, Brooklady, um, Ireland to the south um, is in the Atlantic. Another you know wonderful, beautiful island. Mm-hmm. And then here we are in Grenada, another just, just one island. side of the Atlantic to the other. Yeah, it's just, a, bit just a little little hop, skip, and a jump. <laughs> it's a yeah, warmer. So so I, so I'm sort of used to how islands work. Now I don't know if anybody topically. Uh, has seen uh, um, the the banshees of Inishin. Yeah, uh, it's it. on my list. Yeah, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, you, you'll see it. You know, from you know, it look, looks beautiful, it looks lovely, and the, 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 the usual sort of you know, uh, um, sort of slightly parochial thing. 
But but mm-hmm. if anybody's ever lived on a Hebridean or Irish West Coast island or Grenada, those island intensities come out. You spot them a mile away. A lot of people will just go straight over the top. But but if you've lived on one and you understand how tiny little things take on enormous potential mm-hmm. and bigger, you know, more important things are meaningless. You know, it, the whole thing is, th- th- you know, upside down. Um, and that's very much the essence of that film. You know, you know you've, got, uh, you've got a civil war going on, but it's right. not on the island. It's yeah. on the mainland. Mm-hmm. It's, it's out there. You know, insula is the mm-hmm. term for insula, an island. Yeah. Everybody yeah. looks inwards. It's a hot house. And that's very much what that, that, that film's about. So, so I felt that sort of having lived for, um, well, you know, my house, I've, I've been there almost 20 years now on island. You sort of pick up that. So, so, so coming to Grenada and other islands, you sort of know how islands work. Hopefully um, you so never felt like uh, chopping off any of your own fingers during this process. No, no, no. no. Well, <laughs> I, I felt like, you know, uh, um, um, you, you know so, so that's the first thing. And secondly, you know, you know, you know Grenada, we know, was one of the most fertile and productive islands around. Um, but that got lost. Uh, um, you know, for political reasons, you know, after independence, uh, loss of, you know, markets, you know, loss of land, you know, everything reverting back to Bush. So 40 years of agriculture sort of stopped dead um, mm. of what once was an you know, extremely uh, uh, fertile and, and productive island. It's, you know, it was French at the very beginning, 1700. It then was uh, um, ceded to the Brits. Um, it was then captured by the French. It was then ceded to the Brits. You know, the Brits kept wanting it back because of the fertility of the island. And and and, uh, and then the war came, the First World War, Second World War, and then the inability to maintain uh, um, the dependencies, um, independence, and then the collapse of agriculture. In fact, there's an academic paper uh, done, which is um, entitled How to Collapse an Industry. Mm. And it uses agriculture on Grenada 1945 to 1983 as an example. I've seen seen a a similar paper, um, not in terms of how the story happened, very different stories, but uh, Puerto Rico, sugar industry, once thriving, you go there now, totally gone. So I feel that's kind of a process you see play out in different ways. Sure, the collapse of sugar and and, 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 other reasons. But, But this one was just like, woof. You know, mm. cut off, you know, because of a, a political decision that, you know, we don't want to do this anymore. It's slavery, it's colonial, it's past. We want nice, shiny, you know, suits and offices and air conditioning. But that never sort of, you know, really you know, disenfranchised a lot of people, particularly the north, you know, the poorer parts of the island, as opposed to the, you know, the, the touristically uh, uh, dominated, you know, south, uh, west of the island. So, so, you know, you know the, the 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 idea of islands didn't freak me out. Uh, um, you know the difficulties that that engenders. You know right. the things that um, you have to go softly, softly, and 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 the sensibilities and the subtleties. Sort of a mindset uh, you have to have. Well, yeah, I, I, this is I hadn't mentioned this, but this this for to anybody. But but I remember shortly after reopening Brooklady, and I was visited by. A guy I used to do wine tastings for, uh, he worked at the 
Maida Vale uh, music studios. He was a BBC, he had a, it was one of the BBC orchestras, and they had a little wine group. So after they'd done all their playing, you know, for, for films or whatever it was, uh, I'd go in and do a, a wine tasting for, you know, the, the head cellist and the bass. Uh-huh. But, you know, anyhow, he came to see me on Isla. And I remember I was sitting there with him and he said, uh, he said, how do the locals get on with you? <laughs> and, and okay. We've all, it sounds like he had a certain it, expectation of what the response would be. <laughs> well, but it's a very interesting question because, People will all say, oh, I go on holiday. We went to a lovely island and, yeah. you, know, you know, got on really well with the locals. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. That's the big fallacy. You would tolerate it. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh-huh. You're spending money. Yeah. You tolerate it. It's not a, you know, it, it's this complete sort of, you know, uh, uh, um, ridiculous sort of uh, uh, um, attitude that you think, oh, well, you know, I got on really well with them and I spent lots of money in this shop and I bought a Nicky Naki new and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. I went you to Hawaii and, and people said aloha to me. Yeah. <laughs> you would tolerate it. You would tolerate it. You know, uh, uh, um, and of course, that that's what, you know, the, the thought of that question to me was, well, have you, you get, well, it's not that, it's the other way around. You know, really. It, it, it's more like you know what do they make of you, right. uh, um, and and you know, as an interloper coming in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, and now you've got a choice. You you come in like an imperialist, and you march around, and you you you, you demand this, you demand that, and and you know woe betide you if you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you'll probably get your place burnt down, and you know, that'll be that. Or you go very softly which needs a huge amount of courage and a huge amount of dedication um, because you meet an inordinate amount of frustration. And I'll tell you, describe this to you. In my office at Brooklady, uh, I had a wonderful French window that looked over uh, Lochindol, over towards Ireland, and it had a crack through it. I, I think a seagull had hit it and cracked the window. Mm. And you know, shortly after I arrived, and I, I was sort of this was all new to me. I was learning how, you know, how, how, how to, to tread very shit. And this guy, I heard the, 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 the odd job map, you know, and I, I, so I, call, I, I called him in. I said, you know, you know can, can come in here, please. Right. And I think, could you please replace that window? And you know, right, so no problem. And he got out his tape measure and he measured the top, and he measured it down, he measured the side, measured it down, around the bottom, measured it down. Uh, and, you know, all the fittings, he noticed, you know, all the mates and everything, he noted it all down. I never saw him again. <laughs> mm. That was it. And you think, well, what was that all about? You know, he's an employee of the company. His job is your job, man. I've asked him to do a job. And, of course, you realize that you know, <laughs> what, what you've done in your trying to be efficient was just piss the guy off. <laughs> he put his heels in the ground. He thought, well, stop this. I'm not going to be told what to do. Uh-huh. I'll go through this theater of, of doing it and chuck the notebook away. And that's that. And, and it took me a couple of years because a couple of years later, the same thing, but I still had the crack through the gloves. <laughs> this time, the new, the new odd job man, he came in and I put my shoulder, you know, arm around his shoulder and I walked him towards the window with the crack. And I, I stood there and I said, is this not the most magnificent view uh, looking out over the sea. Isn't that fantastic? He said, yes, sir, it is. It's, it's, it's a fantastic view. The window is replaced the next day. <laughs> it's all, all in how you ask, right? 
So, you know, I mean, that's gailed them for you. But, but I mean, you know, these are the sort of sensitivities, you know, when you are a visitor, when you are a guest to an island where everybody's grown up together, everybody's lived with you, they've been to school together, you know, they've loved together, they've killed together, you know, all, you, you, this, you are merely, and you're never going to be one of these people. You're never, you don't have the back. I, the way I explained it to this BBC guy, I said, it's a bit like, a soap opera, you know, you, you know something like uh, EastEnders, you know, a soap opera. And you have been invited to be the special guest um, in the next <laughs> filming, you know, of the, of, of the soap opera. Mm-hmm. And you turn up on stage and there you are and there's the director and you say, right, okay, where do you want me? And then you suddenly think, well, actually, I've never watched EastEnders. <laughs> right. I don't know what the uh, history uh, is. You know, uh-huh. I don't know what the storylines are. I don't know what the characters do. I don't know who's banging who, you know, who's you know, going out with what. I'm Googling it right now. You, know, you, know, you, you, you have no idea of the, because you haven't watched any of the previous episodes. You are, you know, they all know who you are, but yeah. you have no idea uh, um, about those uh, nuances, the, uh, um, the loves, the passions, the frustrations. You know, I, I mean, I, I ordered once some, some gravel on, on Isla there. And the lorry turned up with the gravel and he refused to put it where I wanted him. I said, well, you know, I'd like it dumped over there. So I'm not doing that. <laughs> and uh, he just dumped it where it, what he was and off he went. And I was absolutely... And it turned out, it turned out that the driver of the lorries family had had a feud with the previous owner of the farm there you go 30 years earlier you didn't watch that season was, of the he show he was yeah buggered if he was going to you know cross that line you know or, or onto this guy's ground banshees of initiation you'll see uh-huh, what uh-huh. i mean so so jane at, at what point did you stop merrily tolerating mark and (laughs) 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 have we gotten there have we gotten there yet yeah not selling into a psychological (laughs) podcast (laughs) um no coming back to your original question though about you know the the issues and i think mark makes a good point though about it island life and how island things operate and it is a different pace especially any island has its own pace and grenada is particularly slow or fast depending on what your reference point is Mm. and i think some of the challenges we've had was um just the pace at which things can move to be implemented right Mm -hmm. like let's say think of the pandemic i mean that was a slowdown for the entire world yeah but that brought everything to a grinding halt up at the distillery and because everything is built bespoke for what we want to do here we had to bring in machinery kit from all over the world, right, Mark? We had people coming in from South Africa, from we've brought in machinery mm. from Scotland, from Germany, Brazil, from Brazil, right? yeah, Ireland, Brazil, all of everything these, coming. The mill, to this the, can I say the bloody mill? <laughs> 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 the mill has given us, you know, um, so much to work with, and so I think the challenges that we faced here is just. If something breaks because we're in a really harsh Atlantic climate, because also we operate on the east part of Grenada, it is the Atlantic. We're not on the cozy Caribbean west side. No, no, no. We are in the flows of it. So, right. So you get hit by sea spray, the, mm. the winds, all of it, and things will just break down. So you'd constantly have to maintain it. 
Yeah. But getting apart because everything is bespoke, it's not a question of, oh, we are ordered on Amazon and it's here tomorrow. It means mm-hmm. like, okay, we need to figure this out. It <laughs> might take three weeks. You yeah, get yeah. it. It might not be the right mm-hmm. part. It will take another three weeks. So your progress is much slower. <laughs> But we're interfacing with the rest of the world, right? Yeah. Our product is an export product. It's not just for our little island where we can mm-hmm. go at whatever pace we want. We want to push forward. And so I think that's been one of the big challenges for us as a former construction phase, as a team, um, really getting to a point of making everything work, getting everything commissioned, running at a steady pace, and then also keeping pace with the rest of the world and being like, here, we've been talking about this amazing project, you've been following us, and then we have all these folks who are excited and like, where are you at? Where's the product? Right, Can right. you show us what you've been doing? What's right? taking like, I mean, so long? Patience. Right? <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I can remember uh, Devin coming up to me and, and, and saying that like, they delivered one of the pieces of kit and there, there was something like five bolts, five bolts short. Uh, um, and, 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 and he said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we'll go, go down to, um, you know, to the you know, shops and buy some more. I said, well, which shop do you go to? And he said, uh, America. <laughs> yeah, on point. On I, I point. Mean, that, that, that is that is the you know, you know, and so so when anything you know talking about the mill, you know, and and you know, we could have seriously done without the uh, shutdowns, the lockdowns. You know, that caused us. Yeah, yeah. It, that almost caused our bankruptcy mm-hmm. uh, um, because we had a, a nine and a half tenths uh, 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 finished distillery. Right. We had to commission all the different bits. You know, you, know, you don't build a distillery and you get that sort of uh, instruction manual that says, thank you for buying <laughs> yeah. your distillery. You know, step one, take yeah. all the parts out of the box. It's like, a, it's like an Ikea manual. In the worst case, it may come in a language you don't you don't. Oh, speak, that's right. right. Yeah. I was gonna say, <laughs> but at least it, you'd it, have, be able to check the bolts if they were there, if that right. was the case. You, 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 got, you, you, got, you got, you know, that doesn't happen. You know, so, so you need to commission. Commissioning is, is is optimizing how these all work together. All the pulleys, all the conveyor belts, everything yeah. has to you know to, to match. And and of course, you know our mill from Brazil. What language do they speak? Portuguese. Portuguese. Mm-hmm. How many Portuguese speakers are there? You know, half of we did by Google Translate. It was it was <laughs> it was unbelievable. Uh, uh, um, we had a, a, an organic Rankin cycle machine. Uh, a oh, unit yes. <laughs> bought from Germany. Fantastic German engineering. If only they'd tell you how it bloody works. You know, <laughs> so, so, you know, so, yeah, oh God. And then, of course, our you know, extraordinary at the heart, you know, the actual heart of this whole project is the biomass boiler. Mm-hmm. Um, this whopping great boiler that came from uh, South Africa. So, you know, of course, Getting anybody from South Africa to Grenada, it's not exactly direct flights. You know, yeah, you, you've got to go yeah. far. You know, so during COVID, we had to get these guys up to Paris, then from Paris to Martinique, and Martinique on a little plane. You yeah. know, I mean, all the things yeah. we had to do. Little tugboats. <laughs> yeah, I think just the logistics for getting us off the ground is slightly unimaginable. It's yeah. wild, right? And then no, I think the go ahead, Mark. So, sorry, so I, 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 I just made that so. Because I see for this 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 thing that just uh, I can see um, I can see the pain, the pain the pain from yeah. this process. <laughs> yeah. It's still yeah. very raw. Yeah. Well, well, because you know, because, you know people listening will say, oh well, well, surely you did your set. Surely you did you know all your you know 
Well, of course we did. We did <laughs> the first thing we did was in 2015, we paid for um, uh, a feasibility study with okay. uh, Booker Tate, the biggest uh, sugar consultancy. I remember going to see them um, in England, a little quiet um, Oxfordshire village, and explaining to them what I wanted to do. And they thought I was stark, staring mad. <laughs> and that was the first thing. Uh, um, so the, we did a, a feasibility study, and, a, and, the, and the guy that did it for us was uh, a chap called Duncan. <laughs> he um, came out and he worked out that, yes, you know, we would need you know, about 150 acres of cane if we could get that. If we could get 150 acres of cane, then it would be feasible to build a distillery. And so it all hinged on that 150 acres. And um, obviously there was no cane on the island apart from one acre, at, at one and a half acres at, at uh, um, River, Antoine. Uh, River Antoine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what would you need to do it? Um, so to, to the next phase, after the feasibility study during 215, was an implementation study. How would you actually make it happen? So yeah. that was the second study. It followed immediately on um, into 216, yeah, January, February 216, the implementation site, which is basically a box list uh, uh, that you tick of the things that you need to be able to build a distillery, to, to, to farm and, 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 and do all that. And, of course, you know, one of the things that was on it, the thing that made me yelp, was, was <laughs> we needed a 500-ton crane. Oh, crane. Be able to lift, hmm. to lift, you know, things, things up. So was there part of the, part of the, you know, the implementation? Was there a, a suitable K crane on the island? And yes, there was. Was it for high? Yes, it was. Does it work? Yes, it does. Brilliant. So roll on to during the construction. Uh, we've now pressed the button. We're now building the distillery. We're now implementing. We need the crane. It doesn't move. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you said, is there a crane on the island? The answer is yes. Does it work? Does yes. it, work? Does it yes. move to where it does it <laughs> move? No, it does an awful good lifting job where it is, but it can't move. You know, so, 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 I, I feel mean, bad laughing was, right now, but well, yeah, I mean, this was, these were the, 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 the challenges and they were one after the other. I can't tell you, you know, none of them were, 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 were sort of, you know, incompetence or it was. It was just. If anything could go wrong, mm. it did. You know, everything could break, and you had to get it. Well, fine. If you analyze what the issue was, brilliant. You could do that. We could do that pretty quick. But getting the replacement part or carrying yeah. the right parts that you needed, you know, that all takes time to work out. Well, wh- what is going to break? Because things do. Uh, you know, it's, it's engineering. Things do. So it's carrying the right uh, 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 spare parts, you know, the things that take the longest period, you know, to get. You know, all this we had to work out. Uh, uh, um, so, so you know, and it doesn't happen overnight. I thought that's where you were going to pull Jane and others in, and you were going to say, "Look at this fine distillery that we're building," and then hope things magically happen, similar to the window. <laughs> oh gosh, um, well. <laughs> <laughs> not quite that simple, unfortunately. Huh? Um, I mean, I bef- think. You, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think the. The realities of logistics on islands, in particular Caribbean islands, is is formidable. But one of the things, as Marco said, you know, in the end, we found solutions for everything. It just means you have to stop and think about it, and that's time that you have to invest. And there is, we had Devin, we had Graham, we had the teams that they worked with, Mm -hmm. and those guys did come through and make it happen in the end, right? So, I, you know, we, we weathered it, but. 
it took a lot. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think one of the key things that we did, which we didn't realize at the time, but would have a huge significance, was uh, um, during the construction phase, when you've got you know, the, the boiler engineers, you've got still engineers, you know, you've, you've got all these, these, these people there, is we employed local guys and mm. girls uh, at that time. You know, we didn't employ them because they had a, um, we didn't say you've got to have a degree in this or whatever. It was on aptitude. Are you interested? Mm. You know, are you really interested? These were all unemployed people in that rural uh, area where 55, 60% youth unemployment. And we identified guys and we got them involved during the construction. Mm. And it was deliberate to get them trained up by to see every nut, every bolt, how it all goes together. These guys hadn't built anything. These guys had, had, had never done anything like this. Um, you know, who, who wants to be a boiler engineer? Well, you can. You know, you know, you know. Hopefully, that so, came so, with a book. <laughs> but, 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 but actually, um, and this, and this it, it was very much uh, 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 Duncan Butler, you know, our, our advisor. You know, it, it was very much, and it was so so relevant because when COVID hit and the two most COVID-afflicted countries in the world were South Africa and Brazil. Mm. No, neither of them could get to us. And we had all this stuff. We were hemorrhaging money like there was no tomorrow. We mm. needed to get distilling. Well, the only reason we were able to do that was because those young lads were able to finish off what, you know, where, they, where they started. Mm. Um, so so you know, we were able eventually to actually start distilling in uh, September Two nineteen, twenty twenty. Yeah, you know the distillery had had taken us. It, you know, it was meant to take a year to put into you know, in, into into place, running the buildings and the installation at the same time. Mm-hmm. But then you were up against a cultural thing where the only builder in town was used to building hotels, and you build a hotel first, and then you bring in all the bits that you need afterwards. Mm-hmm. But we wanted them together at the same time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know th- th- this was just you know it, it you know it just intellectually wasn't going to happen. So so you know really we didn't start distilling in anger. Um, you know by the time we finally got um, everything in place and optimized until January two two thousand uh, yeah. two thousand twenty. Yeah. Uh, um, so 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 we had a, a, a painful construction phase. Yeah. Pain yeah. absolutely painful. And it's you know I, I'm on record. You know, blood, toil, sweat, and tears. Boy, by the Lisa. <laughs> by the Lisa. Well, I, I, we want to get talking about the rum and, and what you're actually distilling now that you, you got through all those trials and tribulations to get there. But I do want to take one step back before we do, and that is to talk about something you've both mentioned already, and that is terroir. So as we're talking about that, I, I wanted to ask a little bit to you both, but I'll start with Mark. You wrote an article titled, Why I Know Whiskey Terroir Exists. And you said in that, quote, terroir certainly isn't a feeling, a sense of place, an airy, fairy, vacuous phrase that wafts around the tourist trails. Uh, well put. But what I want to ask is, what, what is it to you then? Well, I mean, terroir, the problem with terroir is there's no English language or any right. other language. It's a French word. Right. That adequately describes it. That's that's its problem. So therefore, it's perceived by some as some sort of highfalutin, uh, fancy, you know, concept, and therefore you know, they're scared of it. When in fact, there's nothing to be scared about. It's basically gardening. 
Um, <laughs> no more, no less. It, 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 terroir is, as the name implies, it's, it's the sort of three-dimensional interaction between the soil, the microclimate, mm-hmm. and the topography. It's very simple. You know, um, your mother, you know, with her flower beds, you know, that's terroir. She knows mm-hmm. that sandy soils, you know, are better for certain plants. South-facing walls are best for roses. Um, acidic soils are best for fuchsias and rhododendrons. That's terroir. You know, so- soft plants are going to get damaged by frost. You know, that's terroir. It's what happens. Terroir is what happens to a plant, not a person, not a place, uh, uh, not a pres- a process is what happens to a plant, microclimate, soil, and topography. Yeah, so it's and not a mystical it. art; it's agriculture. No, not at all. It's agriculture. No, yeah, it's, it's what we know. Is what you know. We know it best it, it applied to 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 wine because they've sort of been you know exploiting it for longer. But you know, as I said, it applies to farming. It applies to gardening. It's a, it's a, it's the same thing. We just don't call it that. It's interesting because, um, like you said, that that was one of the first things I thought about. I was thinking about this question this morning, and I was just like, the the translation issue. There is there isn't just mm-hmm. French word terroir, English word, you know, X. There isn't a thing, and so it people apply lots of different things to it. And I've heard other approach. There's there's usually when people talk about it, I think some component of what you talked about, which is the land, the soil, the the agriculture, as you were saying. But you also hear things like the 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 people can be part of the terroir, the 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 sort of air. I see you shaking your head already. So yeah, I just it's one of those terms that has so many different interpretations, and that's why since it's such a major role in not just Renegade but the other projects you've done, yeah. I, I wanted to establish kind of your yeah. perspective on well, that. Well, 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 and just because, as I said, you know, it's it's a very simple idea. It's not you know, nothing, nothing, nothing complicated, really. Um, it's this this uh, word which seems to cause the problem, you know, either fear or, 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 but it's equally exploited, and it will be massively exploited to the extent that it will be completely and utterly devalued by the big drinks players, the big industry players, because they're going to appropriate this term because it sounds quite sophisticated. It sounds right. like, and it means actually they don't have to do anything. Mm. Um, and they can just talk about terroir of plates, terroir of people, terroir of this. And people, oh, oh, jolly good, jolly good. Um, so, so unfortunately, it's a heaven loaded word. And mm. I feel rather guilty that I'm going to be responsible for it being destroyed. <laughs> uh, uh, um, you know, because our industry, you know, whether it's rum or whiskey, you know, the spirits, the drinks industry is a very powerful marketing industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, anything, if they see something that they think they can get mileage from, they're going to approve. It's like a magpie. They're going to take it. Mm. And this is ripe for it. But also, if you want to go back to, you know, yes, the concept is not difficult to understand. But let's say if you want to create causality or trace it, this is where it becomes complex again mm-hmm. that, that's where the controversy have, comes in yeah mm. well i don't know even that the controversy is the question of you know how scientific and diligent do you want to be about the mm. process and it's complex right like your climate is a complex phenomenon the soil has its whole thing then you have the topography if you want to map all of that is a lot of data points it's yeah. a lot of data points for something that in some ways is not essential for most industry partners to do right and we do it to some extent and mm. i think we're not or let's say go with grapes 
compared to sugarcane mm -hmm. with grape varieties. If you look into scientific research, you will see much more uh, work that has been done between how certain soils, how the aspects, how that is going to affect certain varieties, right. and then further on the flavor profile. None of that has been done for sugarcane in the same extent. If you talk about sugarcane and the quality of sugarcane, it's about yield, disease resistance, drought resistance. Mm -hmm. It's all about how much sugarcane can you extract from the land as opposed to what kind Which of same flavor are you going to get from it, right? Because so it's a it very was grown different, for sugar, a, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was grown for sugar. Yeah. It's, it's a different utilitarian approach. And mm -hmm. where our attention is, there's also to some extent where the research goes. And so we are striking up with something that hasn't got a depth of research behind it. doesn't mean it's not because it's not existent or because it's too difficult to understand. It's just you have to allocate resources to map and track all those different um, parameters. Mm -hmm. And that, that system, the, the, the knowledge generation system, that is complex. That, yeah. that takes right. time. Right. We know, we can already see there's loads of differences between our farms, between the sugarcane varieties, but it's going to take us years to say, there's a consistent trend. Yeah, exactly. Mark right just there. held up five different bottles of uh, impressively, whatever wrong. Yeah. impressively. Yes. Um, I, I do. I want. I want to transition to how. So, can, so, can, so can, will, oh, will, can I just ahead. add to that? So yeah. Because I, I think that's very important. Terroir to me. It, again, it goes back to the industry, the power of the drinks industry, the Diageos, the Pernod Ricards, these companies that make you know, three, four billion dollars a year in profit you know yeah. they are marketing companies yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people forget this you know they oh they're, they're all just yes they have production side mm -hmm. but 90 percent of it is marketing right it's spinning a yarn telling you why you should drink this why you should drink that mm -hmm. put hairs in your chest whatever yeah we can't compete with this you know as an independent company my marketing is the production so for me it's not about a vacuous production and then spinning a yarn. Mm, right. It's about the actual production itself, how you actually make it. That is the renegade story. Mm. How you actually make it. Yeah. That is our narrative. That is our story. That is what it's all about. Yeah. So Kewa is merely for us a building block. Mm. Okay. It's a building block. Think of a wall. And it's, you know, all these, or, 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 you know, behind me, perhaps, you know, the, the, the tiles on the floor. It is every single one of those is a building block. Are you also, you're, you're maybe fighting a perception out there, uh, whether it's people in Diageo or just general people, that because rum or whiskey is distilled as opposed to like wine, that the terroir is less of uh, an influence? Well, that's just ignorance. That's just outright ignorance. And, 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 and of course, you have to you have to wonder why. And again, you know, certainly with whiskey and with Brooklady, you know, I was attacked by all these talking heads who uh, um, <laughs> basically had to undermine the concept of terroir because it directly challenges the narrative of those big companies. You know, those big companies are marketing a product product a manufactured product made up of ingredients brought from third parties from other side of the world, yeah. mm -hmm. brought together, assembled, and then sent away. Um, and yet the marketing is all about, you know, the, 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 you know, the monarch of the glen and where the eagle soars and, <laughs> and, and, and the babbling brooks and burns and, and the romance and the, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that's the marketing. Yeah. And yet their primary, primary ingredient 
is coming from the other side of the world or Ukraine or Australia, um, that doesn't fit the narrative. So, mm-hmm. you know, here you've got some, you know, guy talking about, you know, specific, you know, the, the precision of place, you know, of terroir here, local. And of course that goes, you know, that begs the question, well, what do you do? And they don't like that question. Yeah. So you shoot the messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you know, with this airy fairy term, it's very easy to do. Well, you know, fine. Right. Um, mm-hmm. now a lot of those people that, uh, um, attacked us at the beginning uh, of, of, of Brooklady, I, I, I mean, a lot, several of those have now left the industry. They've retired and they, they readily admit it was all part of, you know, all, all's fair in love and war, you know, you know, nothing personal that, you know, they, they had an agenda and it was to, to it was, it was to denounce anything. It was Gorbelian, Gorbel's like, you know, in, mm. in, 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 in approach, shoot the me, you know, shoot the messenger. Fine. Now, you know, what we had to do at Waterford when we started that from scratch, uh, um, we had the chance to put everything in place right from the beginning. You know, we, we, we're dealing with barley again, the best barley in the world, which is why I went to, to Ireland you know, for no other reason. The fortune of coming across the, the Waterford Brewery, um, a techno marvel of, of, of stainless steel and, and, and all the gadgets I'd ever, ever wanted. You know, some people said it's like, you know, Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory. Absolutely right. You know, it was for me, uh, um, I mean, everything that I'd seen in Burgundy on a very small scale, here it was, you know, thermoregulation and pneumatic presses and, and all, all these things. It would never in a month of Sundays find in, 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 a, in a distillery. Well, here it was. It was a brewery. And that's, of course, what distilling, you know, we, everybody's been told it's all about the stills. And look at those shiny stills. You know, look at the shiny stills. You know, you know, don't look anywhere. Look at the shiny stills. <laughs> it's actually, it's actually about fermentation. That's oh. really what it's about. And and distilling is is merely schoolboy chemistry. That, that you know, you know, it is very very easy to do. So it's not alchemy. It's not sort of mysterious. It's very simple. It's how greedy are you going to be with the middle cut? The greedier you are, the less pure the spirit's going to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. The shape of the still, well, we all know, you know, since, you know, for 140 years, what the optimum still shape is. That's fine. And then the third thing is how fast do you run the middle cut? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're really in a race to get it over and done with as quickly as possible, well, you've got to produce thin spirit. Mm-hmm. If you slow it right down, you're going to produce more viscous spirit. Yeah. Now, more or less, that's distilling. You know, I, I don't mean to disparage distillers out there, but, uh, um, you know, it isn't what it's been cracked up to be, this mysterious, you know, alchemic thing. No, unfortunately, the boring bit, because you can't really see it, happens inside a tank. It's the fermentation. It's how you get at those original flavor compounds. And this is what terroir, you know, this is where we're going here. It's where does that flavor originate? Yeah. Now, you've heard as well as I have, 80% of a whiskey's flavor comes from the wood. Mm-hmm. Well, that's bollocks. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, if it was the case, we wouldn't bother with barley. We wouldn't bother with it. We would just put water in a barrel and you'd end up with whiskey. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, the, you, know, you know, the stupidity of that phrase, and yet it's bandied around willy-nilly as a soundbite, you know, 
detracts from the fact that actually whiskey's flavor comes from barley, just as rum, bar, you know, cane rum comes from sugarcane. And those flavor compounds appear in the grain and are nurtured by the microclimate, the soil. Is it you know, water retentive? Is it sort of drought prone, et cetera, et cetera. And so those flavor compounds appear in the grain or in the cane. Now, this is the important thing. They are immutable. You cannot destroy them. They are there in the cane, and they'll be there in your bottle. They're not going anywhere. What happens in the barrel? Yeah, sure. There's micro-oxygenation through the wood, which somehow gives us an impression of maturation. We're not quite sure of the mechanism yet, but I can tell you we're working on it uh, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know. Yeah. But what we do know is, that, you know, for example, and this is a paper that's coming out, uh, and this is our second paper mm-hmm. that's coming out um, in the spring, later in the spring, is we know that terroir exists because we've done the research with Scotland's leading whiskey laboratory, with the Ministry of Agriculture in Ireland, and with America, uh, Oregon State University's Dr. Dustin Herb. Over three years, we did a project to find out once and for all, does terroir exist? Because of my critics from the industry always saying, ah, yes, but there's no scientific evidence to prove it. You know, it's going to get destroyed. You know, the effects are going to, even if it was there in the grain, it's not going to be there in the spirit because we do too many nasty things to it. Hmm. Conveniently forgetting about cognac and the fact that it's a, a cooked wine based on terroir, but, you know, let's not go there. So the, 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 when we did this research, we discovered that nobody had actually proven that terroir exists. The French had never done it. They just take it for granted. Terroir to them is what a thousand years of monastic observation yeah. has observed. They came up mm-hmm. with the They're, word for it, so. Yeah, and then <laughs> enshrined in law, the Appellation Contrôle Law mm-hmm. the, the system. So they never bothered. The market decides whether it's the 1855 Bordeaux classification, you know, or whether it's the market price of Romani Conti versus Latache, two vineyards side by side. You know, one's, you know, I think 10,000 quid a bottle. The other's about why? Same grape, same manufacturer, but, you know, the value of one is 10 times the value of the other. The other side of the wall, it's 100 times less. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, this is terroir. This is the market deciding that that's worth more than that because it tastes better because the microclimate, the soil there produces a different result to over here. So, so you know, the, the, uh, uh, when we did this study, uh, it took three years to do it, we discovered a number of things. Well, two things essentially. First of all, that there are an extraordinary 2,000 flavor compounds, 2,000. And of the major flavor compounds, 60% of them are influenced by where it grows, terroir. So terroir is a thing. So I don't care what anybody says, you know, whatever, you know, it exists. It's a thing. This is peer-reviewed, accepted by Food Magazine, and it's there to be seen. Terroir, as we all know, and we all knew all along, exists. All right? Yeah. So that we can put that to bed. Okay. What we, dis- what we discovered uh, which was slightly surprising, was that the variety of barley made no difference. 
Hmm. And when we discussed, when we looked into it a bit further, we discovered that there was a reason for this. That from that Annus Horribilis 1973, that, that, that era of industrialization, the propagation of barley's in 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 in, uh, in Europe were, as as Jane said earlier, were, were, were to do with disease resistance, to do with uh, field yield, distillation yield, climate adaptability, um, low straw, you know, so they don't fall over in the wind, um, but never for flavor. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's worse. All they did for 50 years was replicate exactly the same flavor because the two original parents from which all modern distilling barley is, is developed were cousins. Mm. They were genetically too similar. Mm-hmm. And so all that's happened is it's been replicated. I mean, it's a tragedy, 50 years. So we've had to go back before 73, back into the 60s, back into 1900, back to 1870, back to the Middle Ages to find out what the hell were the flavors that we've right. lost. Right. Now, that's whiskey. Now, wind forward to, 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 to rum, to cane, cane variety, which is yeah. why you know I'm not interested in molasses. You don't go build a distillery like we've done if you want to distill molasses because you know 90% or so of rum is made from those little blue barrels. Mm-hmm. You know, from a centralized commodity supply, you pick up the phone, you order the barrels, they turn up, you distill it, you've got rum. It can happen anywhere in the world. It happens on an island. There's a guy distilling yeah. uh, on mm-hmm. island. So, so, so this is a, a side of rum which is easy, calm, easy go. You get into it very, very straightforwardly. You call up those those. Everybody's starting with the same substrate, more or less. I have no interest in that. I'm sure there's a lot of very good rums out there. Uh, made this way, fine, good. Mm-hmm. I am interested in sugarcane because it's a plant. It is going to be subject and influenced by the microclimate, the soil, uh, and the topography. So coming here to Grenada, where you have a volcanic island, okay? So you know, you've, got, you've got sedimentary rocks that have been mm-hmm. raised up from, from above the sea, and then you've got volcanic activity on top of that. And then you've got two million years of tropical weathering to create all those gullies and ravines mm-hmm. And two million years of alluvial soils being washed uh, down onto the plains mm-hmm. and colluvial soils being brought down from the steep sides of the volcanoes, rendering the, the upper slopes very thin and therefore not water attentive at all, down to the bottom where it accumulates the lighter sediments, the thinner, thinner elements to create deep soils that are clay rich which are water retentive and where the plants the cane grows like bilio uh because it's it's got that terroir um which which uh, um, enables that to happen so you so very basically very basically if you plant cane on the top of a volcano and you plant cane at the bottom of the vo- volcano one at the bottom is going to be very verdant, very lush, mm-hmm. and very tall and fast growing, but perhaps less bricks because it's putting that energy into, into, into growth. Whereas at the top, where the soil has been washed away, uh, the roots have to go deeper into the mineral substructure of the, of, of the subs, uh, 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 subsoil and mm-hmm. bedrock, drawing up minerals. But it's drought prone. It's weathered by the wind. The evapotranspiration is very high. 
Um, so it's losing all its moisture. Mm-hmm. It's putting, it's creating more bricks as a result, more, more sugar concentration. But the poor old plant is stunted. Its, its, its leaves are yellow. Uh, the edges get turned white by the prevailing trade winds. Um, it is the most unpropitious place to grow anything. But boy, when you distill it, fuck me, it produces <laughs> really, really interesting spirits. Now, we sort of know this concept from Burgundy. I've, I've followed it. I've watched it for, you know, for 20, 30 years. I, I even at one point owned a little bit of Grand Cru uh, um, vineyard there. The principle's the same. The Appalachian Control System. Just look mm-hmm. at any of those vineyard maps and you'll see that you know the grand crews occupy that base of the concave slope the actual plane itself um is the ordinary burgoyne rouge or burgoyne blonde the, the base level uh generic product and then the premier crews are around the the steep up slopes of, mm-hmm. of the concave and then again at the top uh, um where, where where it's flattened out um, you get you get the you know the the the, the village wines. So you know you, you, it, it's it's not a new idea. You know it's 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 right. it's there's plenty of evidence. What we've done is is actually mapped it out flavor wise. Um, that's why I'm doing it mm-hmm. because I want to know what those flavors are. And I can tell you with our volcano that example of of Lake Antoine, which is a um, a volcanic crater lake. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the difference between the top, the exposed top, and the protected bottom is more or less the difference between a very nervous, uh, tight, elegant, uh, um, stony mineral style versus what I call you know, the fat cigar and uh, armchair uh-huh. at the bottom, <laughs> where you've got a big, fat, bloated, you know, you know, <laughs> that... that, that that's the difference. If you if you get the the imagery, right. you know, you've got that tightness from the top, and you've got that fatness and, the, and opulence at the mm. bottom. Mm. That's <laughs> more or less what we are discovering. Um, we talked about Willy Wonka. This is just amazing to me because <laughs> if you if you taste this distillate uh-huh. from a specific farm, from a specific terroir within the farm, from a specific field within the terroir, within the farm. Mm-hmm. And you stand there and you taste the spirit and you're holding the soil in your hands, you know, and you're seeing you know, where, it, where it was born. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. Yeah. And then you go down and you try the same thing at the other end and compare the differences. You know, what I'm finding, what we're finding is these terroir differences are much greater than... I anticipated. Mm. Um, mm. So, so each of the twelve farms, soon to be fourteen, wow. uh, we have subdivided. Baines helped greatly in, the, in this, and Duncan Butler, our cane. Do you remember the guy that helped us at the very beginning? Uh-huh. Yeah, yes. He now is in it's charge back. of our agriculture. <laughs> he loved it. He That's loved great. it so much. He came and stayed. You know. So we've mapped out, and you can see it on the on the cane code mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. on our website for each mm-hmm. of these uh, whiskey uh, these rocks whiskey bro. Um, <laughs> you can see, you can see uh, how we've mapped out the obvious terroirs that are there. Because once you've cleaned it all away, all, all the all the, the the bush that's grown up, you know, over, over the last thirty, forty years, um, and you see the ground, 
and you see uh, uh, I mean, the soil analyses that we've done that James has helped with, and you see the topography, we've mapped it all out. So each of those farms, I mean, on average, has about five different observable terroirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and these and- are these are areas of the farm where the soil is literally different. Basically, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're not just the soil. Remember, it's not just it's the soil; it's mm-hmm. microclimate mm-hmm. and topography. Mm-hmm. Right. So, an example of that would be uh, Lake Anton, the crater lake. It, guess what? It's round. Yeah, <laughs> it's round. Okay, so we've got a north, we've got an east, and we've got a south. And those are going to be very different. Right? Yeah, so yeah. North facing, south facing. Yeah. Guess what? You know, upper is going to be different to mm-hmm. lower. Mm-hmm. Guess what? And of course. What is we're finding on the ground? And it, you, you may find, for example, New Bathalette, um is right by the, the ring, the, the road that runs around you know, the island. Mm-hmm. See it from, you don't have to get out of the car. There it is. It's like a Roman amphitheater. Mm-hmm. It faces due south, mm-hmm. you know, like, like a satellite dish. Yeah. It's protected by hills all around it. So it's protected from the, the, the drying effect of the, of, of the wind. It's a sun trap, a veritable sun trap. Now, mm. you know, you follow it every day. And you, you drive and, and you see the cane getting paler and paler <laughs> and drier and drier. And, and, and you, you think, oh, God, it's going to die. You know? mm-hmm. And then we harvest it. And you know, I remember seeing that bull for the first time when it was still you know, rough and, 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 and you know, bush ridden. And you'll see that is a classic terror. Mm. Got to plant that one up. And, and then you've got little river valleys, you know, which are nicely protected, alluvial uh, bases, fantastic. Or you've got Old Bacalet or Hope, both of which part of some of the old, the residues of the old estates of which there were roughly 45, um, between two rivers, flat as a pancake. It's clay rich. It's all that alluvial. This cane grows like mad. You know, it's fantastic. Or to one side, you've got the slope with all those pyroclastic rocks that have been exploded up you know, yeah. over the years, like whopping great mortars. You know? It's a terroir paradise. And we have built a distillery precisely to exploit those terroir differences. It's just that I never knew just how different they were going to be. And how diverse this would be. And I think just to put that into context and wrap it up, what um, Mark has said, Grenada is a very small island, so often when we travel and we talk about it, like, can there be so much difference in such a small place? Right, right, but yeah. if you really want to picture it, Grenada isn't flat. It's mm-hmm. part of the Windward Islands, as Mark said, it's a volcanic, mm-hmm. of a volcanic mm-hmm. origin. Mm-hmm. So you just have from one little bay to another a lot of environmental micro yeah. in, like micro yeah. differences. Yeah. So you could be here, down here right now. I can see there's some rain coming, and I know that rain is going up the hills but it's not ever going to hit me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is how, how differentiated those different spaces are and places where we grow. And so I think that's the exciting part from our, from our end where it comes to terroir. That wasn't a concept, again, that would have been explored in Grenada. And, and we've been playing with it on the nose because, well, mm-hmm. let's say we see it in the cocoa industry here as well. Uh, People yeah. do it with dark chocolate. Right. And so there's, again, this thing where, Okay, maybe it's controversial from the idea that, you know, we're dealing with a distillate at the end of the day. But right. terroir is, is, it goes across anything you, you work with yeah. and you work with the raw material. And I think Grenada for us, maybe, Mark, I'm going to throw this question back down to you. It came up earlier, you know, why Grenada? And I get that question from Grenadians. Why would, why would we do it here? 
what 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 does Grenada have to offer? This little speck, this little rock in the middle of nowhere. And I think the diversity that Mark has has described that is the answer. Mm. And it's it's an undiscovered gem to some extent. And also, there has not been any. Grenadian rum. Every distillery in the few that we have has a completely different process. And no other distillery has mm. explored the natural environment and the raw material, the sugarcane, in the way that we do. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Rumcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, if you've gotten any bottles of Renegade Rum and want to share your thoughts and impressions on those releases, we'd love to hear all about that. You can always email us at host at rumcast.com, H-O-S-T at rumcast.com. Also, send in your funny, weirdly placed rum bottles. <laughs> we'd yeah, love to, we want to yeah, see we'd them. love to see more of those. Um, or stories if you don't have pictures. That's fine, too. Um, you can send them to us uh, via email, like I said. John, they can also find us on social media. Where can they find us there? That's right. We're on social media at Instagram, at The Rumcast. Uh, also, Facebook. We have our Facebook group at The Rumcast. And Twitter. We post things to Twitter. We don't do as much engagement there, but at least it's there if you're looking for the episodes. And, of course, you can go to our website and listen as well. So, www.rumcast.com where we house all of that information. And we've actually had a few requests, Will, for us to list our favorites from last year, 2022, oh, right. and yeah. other years. We so to do that. we're going to get that soon. We're going to have a new page on the website to, to post that information for reference for people. So uh, we heard you. We're listening. And uh, thank you for that. And we'll, we'll get that up soon. Um, but yeah, a- anytime you have anything you want to uh, let us know or anything about Renegade, of course, part it's two coming. is coming yeah, soon. One Will. week. So part two mm-hmm. will be out yeah. soon. Mm-hmm. So uh, you may want to hold any questions related to any of their aging stuff which we're going to talk about in the next part but yeah other than that let us know uh, what's going on with renegade or let us know about your odd bottle placements and we we, we're happy to to hear that and see how that goes so uh i think that's it will what else we got just uh hey say hello if you see us at miami rum congress yeah if you're listening to this this weekend and it's saturday we will literally be there right now so come say hi it'd be great to, to hang out and chat with all of you but if we don't see you there until next next time we'll see you on the podcast for part two see you then